Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by the SATC Solutions Center. You can connect with us on Instagram or Twitter where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. For more information, including our email, visit us online at satcsolutions.com. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Bridging Chicago on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. I'm Nathan, one of the hosts of the podcast and a senior legal assistant at SATC Law, our law affiliate. And so I want to thank you for joining us today. I also want to thank Shoshana Bukholtz-Miller for joining us. She is the executive director of Cradles to Crans Chicago. And Shoshana, I've been really excited to talk to you. I've been looking at what your organization does and been talking to some of the people there and it's really exciting and I can't wait to share it with everyone. So thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here too, Nathan. Awesome. Um, We always like to start with giving a little background on our guests because I think it's good for people to, to know you a little bit. And so we'll obviously talk all about what the organization is doing, but why don't you share with us a little bit about you? And let's start where we always like to start. Are you from Chicago or did you move here from somewhere else? So if you consider the northern suburbs Chicago, then yes, I am from Chicago or the Chicagoland area. I grew up actually in Highland Park um, and lived away for a little while and have been back in Chicagoland, either in the city or the suburbs for the past 20 some years, 22 years or so. Awesome. We don't want to start any fights, so we're going to say you're from the northern suburbs. Thank you. Okay. Chicago. Okay. Chicagoland. I, people... I like to say <laughs> Chicagoland. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, tell us about, we. it's interesting when we talk to people from the suburbs because I honestly don't know much about them. I'm from central Illinois in a small town, and so everything up here is just like kind of crazy to me, but um, <laughs> all the suburbs seem to be pretty different from each other. And so can you share with us about Highland Park and what it was like growing up there? Sure. I mean, I think looking back on it, it was a pretty great place to grow up. Um, My mother still lives in Highland Park and it's a northern suburb, actually in Lake County. Um, And it's on the water and it's a town of about 35,000 people. And you know, has um, I had a great kind of childhood experience of friends and good school and liked my teachers and um, my parents were educators um, up here. And so, you know, I think of it as like a pretty idyllic place. And I guess it kind of is known that way too, because there are lots of John Hughes movies filmed in Highland Park. And there are many. So if you've seen a John Hughes movie, you've probably seen something of a snapshot of where I grew up. (laughs) What's it like seeing your neighborhood in movies or like knowing, okay, like that was filmed on the street for me? Because I know like in Chicago, there's a lot of stuff that's filmed. I live in the loop. So there's a lot of stuff filmed here. So it's Mm -hmm. like, you would expect that though in Chicago, but like, I can't imagine like being home and being like, oh, there's a movie truck right there or whatever. Yeah, that was um, a bad, it was kind of the, for whatever reason, there was a period in the eighties and nineties to date myself um, when there were filming a ton of movies in um, the Northern suburbs and in Highland Park in particular. So John Hughes and then 
Risky Business was filmed around me and Home Alone. Um, and it's pretty, it's always been fun to be able to refer to those movies because people know them. And yeah. so if you talk about Bref Breakfast Club or Ferris Bueller's Day Off or Home Alone, like, you know, even kids today know those movies. And so they have a sense of, of kind of where you lived or what it yeah. looked like a little bit, even though it's a, still a Hollywood version of the reality. Awesome. Well, I'm going to pretend like what I see on TV is exactly what it's like so that I can feel like I, we have some connection there. And then um, when you were growing up, what what were your parents' interactions with you like? Were they like really supportive of you, the things that you were interested in, or did they understand those things? Or sort of how did they encourage you along when you were a kid? And especially in the things that really interested you. So like, what were those things? And then how did they kind of support that? Um, I was an only, I have two half sisters, but they were considerably older than me. So okay. I really grew up as an only child. Um, and, um, you know, I think my parents probably because of being able to not have to have their attention drawn between lots of kids, you know, I think focused on me and were pretty supportive of me. Um, I yeah. had a my parents, my mom was a teacher. My dad was a school superintendent. They were both really into education. I was really into school. So I guess we related to each other <laughs> on that level. I was interested in tons of activities at school and they thought that was great. So it was a pretty, I mean, I don't think I made life so hard for them. And um, and they had wanted me to flourish. And I think we're related to the things that I was interested in. So it was a pretty good way to grow up. Um, you know, my, my father was older and he had grown up during the depression. So there was a lot of hearing about how he would go to school uphill in the snow without shoes both ways, you know, <laughs> through his childhood. So that, that definitely was a presence in my life, but, um, but they were very, they wanted me to kind of embrace the opportunities that I had. So there was no winning arguments for you in that house. No, no, there was <laughs> one could always pull out the Great Depression. In fact, when I um, applied to college, that was one of my essays. Was the the question was like, what historical event has influenced you most? And I wrote about the Depression. Um, but I think about it now. I have three kids now, and I always tell them how like they're going to get to write about the pandemic, and they're going to get yeah. to tell their kids like, you don't want to go to school. I couldn't go to school. Right? Right. I could have given anything to go to school. So so um, yeah. at least they'll have that going for them. Yeah, I guess every generation has something. <laughs> so you got to have some leverage. <laughs> right. Um, it's always interesting to me to hear about when people graduate from high school and decide what to do next. And some people obviously take the college route and just go right from high school to college. You pick a major and you start studying that. Um, some people work first, you know, people do all kinds of different things now. And so for you, what was the choice that you made after high school? And then sort of how did you make that choice? Like what were the influences of your life that helped you to decide what to do or where to go after that? So I went straight from high school to college. Um, I went to Duke University um, and wow. that was, um, it I don't think I spent a ton of time considering not going to college. That was something my parents really expected and wanted. 
um, as teachers and educators, they thought that was really important. And so, um, you know, and I was very excited to go away and to try living in a new part of the country. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to study. I was interested in, um, I was interested in government and international relations and politics roughly, but I didn't really know what that meant and I didn't know what I would want to do with it, but I had been kind of raised on the idea that getting kind of a broad liberal arts education would set you up to do something that was interesting yeah. and exciting. And so I didn't really feel pressure to figure that all out. I just was excited to be in a new place and meet new people and kind of, you know, be also in a really um, rich learning environment that also had some really great sports teams. So. Yeah, and speaking of sports teams, I happen to be a North Carolina fan, a UNC fan, so... Oh, I hope that we can still be friends. <laughs> yeah, well, we can get through the podcast, but I can't promise you okay. much more than that. All right. No, I was just... Uh, it's, it's such a fun rivalry, so I think it's great. Um, but it, it's interesting because, like, such a young age, you know, you're, you're trying to figure out what you want to do in life, and you can only go based on what you know up to that point, and then the people that you trust in your life to, to sort of speak into that. Um, so a lot of people we find do either switch majors or they end up doing something very different than what they're, you know, what they studied and all all that. And so I think it's good that people, that even when you pick a major, even when you decide to do something, it's not like, okay, this is what I have to do forever. I can always try new things or, you know, just go out there and, and do something else or, you know, kind of take a very hard left turn if I need to. And um, I'm, I'm glad to see that more and more people are just doing all kinds of different things and not getting, you know, locked into one area. I, I think it's, so I have a daughter who's a senior in high school now and okay. she is trying to figure out what she's going to do next year. And she wants to go to college and she's thinking about where she's going to apply. And she doesn't really know what she wants to do. And I don't expect her to know that because she's 17. Yeah, um, but yeah. it is true that a number of her peers and a lot of people will ask her, well, like, what do you want to do when you grow up? Do you know what you want to study? She's a, you know, English, history, politics, mm -hmm. maybe. I mean, it's not like a pre-professional thing. And I'm really, I, I really... Um, I'm supportive of that because I do feel like it's really hard at the age of 17 to yeah. chart a course and make a commitment about, and some, some, a lot of kids do it, but I, I understand if you don't want to, because ha I have to say that looking in my career, I never, it, it, there was no grand scheme. There was no grand plan to end up here where I am today. And I, there's probably not a grand plan for where I'll be by the time I retire. So I think it's good to be able to be flexible and take it as you come. And it's, you know, it's hard to expect people at 17 to make a whole, to chart a whole course. Kind of speaking on that too, because I think one of the things that keeps us from doing certain things is that fear of failure where it's like, if, if I do it and it doesn't work out, you know, what am I going to do then? Have you ever felt that where, you know, being worried about, maybe not doing something as successfully as you wanted? And then how do you sort of approach that? Or, or how do you deal with that and say, and push through and say, no, like, regardless of the outcome, I, I think this is still worth giving time and effort to. 
Yeah. I mean, I, certainly in my career and in different projects that I've worked on, I've had those moments of uncertainty about, is this going to be successful? Um, and you never know if something's going to be successful unless you do it and, and finish it. Because if you stop in the middle or stop before you do it, you don't know the answer. And, you know, I think I've been involved in things that um, I've been given the room to have some ability to fail. But I also think that it's okay to figure out if there's something that isn't working for you. And the mm -hmm. best example I can give is, um, for me personally, is, you know, I, I, I went um, to graduate school and I was living abroad. I was living in the United Kingdom and I was interested in journalism and I got a job as a, as a business journalist on a publication and I hated it. <laughs> it was so <laughs> disappointing because I really thought, you know, I love to write. I like to talk to people. I'm interested. I like to ask questions. I thought it would be perfect for me. And I, I was so unhappy in doing it. And I really felt like, oh, but I, I should do this because all these things are supposed to be interesting. And if I don't do this, what will I do? And ultimately what I realized is that I wasn't, you know, being unhappy every day when you go to work is not a recipe for a happy life. And if you're 25 years old and you're doing that, um, you know, what does that mean that the next 40 years of your life is like mm -hmm. this? So I think you have to give yourself permission too to trust your instincts and say like not every, not everything that you think is for you really is for you. And as a leader of an organization, I'm sure that information has really <laughs> come been important. And I think as, you know, thinking about being led by someone, it's one of those hard truths that you might have to hear at some point, but I think is actually really beneficial for both parties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's true. Someone told me once that, you know, if someone's struggling in their role, um, and you as a leader are seeing them struggle and are frustrated, they too are frustrated and unhappy. And because they're, they're not happy struggling every day. And so that's an important thing to remember is that both of you are, are, are unsatisfied and there's probably ways to solve it. And sometimes you can solve it successfully together. And sometimes you solve it by deciding that it's not the right role for the person, but that's, yeah probably a good for them in many instances. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned you were in the UK working wasn't for you. And so what was the next phase of life for you then? Because I'm sure, I'm guessing you didn't go from being there to, to being executive director at Cradle and Cranza, Illinois. No, there's, Cranza, Illinois it's, so it's, it's been a long and windy road. Um, but I did move after that. I stayed in the UK and I worked for okay. a nonprofit in the United Kingdom, the Multiple Sclerosis Society at the time. And, um, and I liked the non I liked working in the nonprofit world. Um, and I, I really liked that sense of, of having a positive social impact and, and connecting with people in particular, my job at that time, I dealt with on a regular basis, um, people who had multiple sclerosis. I, we, mm. we have a helpline that I worked on, but I worked in other kind of um, support services. And so I thought that that was interesting, that that, that kind of helping role and that um, kind of advocacy role was important to me. And so when um, I moved back to the United States, 
I got a job at a nonprofit here in Chicago um, called the Anti-Defamation League, and they do civil rights um, kind of activism and advocacy and education. And that seemed really interesting and exciting. And we did that kind of direct service so people would call with an incident that they felt that they were being discriminated against. But we also did education. We did Holocaust education and trying to um, kind of apply the lessons of the Holocaust to the present day. And we did, um, you know, really trying to find advocate for everyone's civil rights. And that was really exciting. Um, We also did a lot of monitoring of extremist groups. So I spent time doing that, um, which was interesting. And I learned a lot. Um, And that has really since that time, I would say the common theme for me has been working in either nonprofit or not just for profit. And also really trying to focus on um, social justice and human rights issues in different ways. So, you know, that has run its course in many different ways. And I worked for, after working at the ADL, I did spend um, 10 years in philanthropy. So working for foundations, helping people effectively invest in nonprofits and give money away, um, which was really exciting. But then I've come back to the kind of nonprofit side of things too for the past seven years. Yeah. When I think of nonprofits, one of the things, I mean, obviously I have a ton of respect for people who work for nonprofits and the organizations that are doing important work, not just in Chicago, obviously, but everywhere. But I think about how difficult it has to be some days to work in nonprofit areas, especially like you were talking about, areas that deal with civil justice, civil rights or social justice issues where maybe it doesn't feel like you're having as much success as you would hope you would, or maybe it, you know, you you feel like you're fighting an uphill battle a lot of days. And and I don't mean to project things onto you, but just from what I've learned and from people that I've talked to, I mean, there are certainly a lot of days where you can feel like uh, you're you're working uphill or maybe it's not is it worth the effort that we're putting into it if we're not getting the results that we were hoping for um, versus being in a private sector where, you know, it's much more about money and it's much more about results and, and all these numbers and everything. So for you, I mean, what's the motivation to work in nonprofit given the difficulty of different levels of success or, you know, even knowing how much money you're going to have to budget for the next year or where that's going to come from or staffing issues or, you know, a a number of things that I'm sure you have to deal with, not just every year, but day to day. Yeah. I would say that really what, um, what drives me is the mission and the kind Mm. of psychic compensation that comes along Mm. with the work. Um, So I have had, you know, it's true. I did experience, I have experienced in different roles feeling burnt out and feeling like you said it, pushing a boulder uphill. And so, you know, after four years at the Anti-Defamation League, I felt tired and I felt a little like I can't be on the front lines every single day, Um, even though I knew we were doing good work and I felt like it was, it would have an impact. It just was hard. And so I, I decided to go into philanthropy. So helping found working for foundations, because I felt like, well, that's a little bit removed. So you're not quite on the front lines, but you're still 
having a social impact, but you're you're giving money to organizations that are on the front lines. Yeah. And I did that. Um, I did that for ten years. I did that for a foundation, and then I worked for a consulting firm. So I even took a step further back. I worked <laughs> for a consulting firm that would have clients that were foundations. And what I learned in doing that was, um, a, I, I was removed a bit from even more from the mission because I was working with clients. Um, so not doing the work myself, but even beyond that, I was leading one of the businesses in the firm. And so my, to what you said, my focus really had to be on our profitability and on, um, you know, our different products that we were providing to our clients. And I realized that that was not what got my blood pumping in the morning. Like what excited me in the morning was thinking about the impact and, and just thinking about the issues that are important to me that the, yeah. so trying to those justice issues, if I wasn't thinking about them every day and thinking about, you know, how we could impact them and intersect with them, I just wasn't stimulated. Yeah. And so ultimately I decided to go back to working in nonprofits because that's the thing that makes me um, happy and, and enthusiastic. And I'm married my husband works in the financial world and he would say, I would say, oh, I just don't want to think about, you know, our profitability. And he's like, well, that's why you belong in the nonprofit world <laughs> and I belong in the world I'm in. Um, and I think that was that's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I don't think about money because it's true what you said that in the nonprofit world, especially as an executive director, you're thinking all the time about your budget and how are you going to raise all the funds that you need to do, you know, to achieve your mission. So you're not free of it. It's just, it's just so inextricably linked to the mission that it, you know, it, it's a means to an end. Right. Yeah. And I think one of the the really important things is that that you mentioned is the mission because if you believe in the mission, I'm sure that makes it a little easier, and I'm sure it makes it, um, you know, it makes it gets people motivated to keep doing it and inspire others to join them in in that mission. And so for you, tell us about Cradles to Crayons Chicago, its mission, and then what about the mission sort of inspires you to inspired you to work with them and then how you kind of inspire other people on the staff with that mission. Sure. So Cradles to Crayons provides new and gently used clothing and necessities to children from birth to age 12 living in Chicagoland. And um, our goal is really to provide all kids with these basic necessities that they need to thrive at home, at school, and at play. So we, you know, kids today, they, of course, they need shelter and they need food and they need health care. They also need clothing and they need school supplies and they need diapers and hygiene supplies and books and coats in the winter and boots and shoes. And there really are not the social safety net supports to provide those items that I just listed yeah. to you to kids. Um, and so it falls to organizations like ours to fill in that gap and yeah. to really be that, that safety net for kids. And so I think what was compelling to me, um, one of the many things that was compelling to me about the organization when I joined three years ago was that there, you know, while there, while we can spend a lot of time talking about that, how there's not enough support for families 
in terms of housing and healthcare and food, there is literally no government support, um, federal or state in Illinois for the things I just mentioned. And, and also there are a lot of people um, who live in our community who have these resources at home and are looking, you know, are just not sure what to do with the clothes that their kids grow out of or the toys that their kids are no longer playing with that are in great condition. And so being able to be that kind of um, central connector, um, it was, seemed, you know, sustainable and, you know, meeting a really important need. And then we really rely on volunteers to make all of this happen. And I, I, I'm really um, enthused and feel energetic about finding ways for people to engage civically and to feel connected. You know, I'm so connected to a mission. I want other people to have that bug too. And so we provide that opportunity as well. And so all of those things working together, um, got me really excited about trying to, you know, expand an organization that started here in Chicago five years ago. It's a national organization. So it's been in existence in Boston for 19 years and Philadelphia for 14 years, but was relatively new here. And we really wanted to, we really thought, knew there was a need in Chicago that we could help meet. Yeah. And when I was researching the organization, um, one thing that stuck out to me was uh, the discussion on childhood um, poverty. And it's interesting to think about childhood poverty because you think, well, kids don't make money. Like they get, <laughs> they get allowance from their parents, but like childhood poverty, what does that really mean? And in some ways that means that they're, you know, it's family poverty because mm-hmm. obviously their parents are also living in poverty. And, um, and a lot of organizations that we've talked to do talk about generational wealth, which I think then leads back to childhood poverty, because if there's Mm -hmm. nothing before them, you know, there may not be anything after them as well. And so for you, um, can you tell us about childhood poverty and why that cycle is important to really think about when thinking about all these things that nonprofits deal with? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think if we, we know that the data shows that Children who grow up experiencing poverty have a number of um, have a number of obstacles to overcome that kids who don't have that challenge when they're children yeah. um, don't have to face. And so, you know, there's there's a there are links between school readiness and school attendance and therefore school performance related to childhood poverty. And a number of those things relate to the fact that kids may may not have the things they need to get to school. And so, you know, we know that one of the top 10 reasons kids don't go to school is they don't have school supplies. Um, And so if we can play a role in removing that factor, then, you know, that's one more one more kid who's going to school who may not have otherwise gotten there. And if you're not going to school, then you're not achieving in school. But beyond the academic component of things, there's also um, social, emotional, and self-esteem issues that, you know, kids face. Um, because if they're not, if they don't feel, you know, we, we talk about it in terms of clothing insecurity. So mm-hmm. if you don't have adequate, appropriate 
um, clothing, then you may feel really um, uncomfortable and you don't want to raise your hand and answer the question and you sit in the back of the class and you may not play with your peers or you may get teased. Um, And those things really impact a child. You know, if you think, if we all think about when we were children, how, how, um, that those kind of negative interactions impacted us yeah. to yeah. to have those things brought on you through no fault of your own, but just the circumstances that you're in and no fault of your families, the circumstances they're in, um, you know, that has a long-term impact on a child. And so we want to be able to, again, alleviate those impacts so that kids can be present, can play and engage and have positive relationships and be a part of their communities when and feel good about themselves. Yeah. As you were sharing that, something that I was thinking about that I feel like has impacted kids over really probably all time, but in a different way, especially in the last 10 years, let's say, um, is bullying because bullying is, is really a big um, and it is a real problem in schools and now with social media, it's like they don't even have to. It's not even like pushing you down or, you know, giving you a swirly or whatever bullying. But it's, you know, even social media or cyberbullying. And so for you, is that something that your organization has kind of talked about or or is it something that you have any insight to as to how bullying may be affecting some of these as well? Well, so we one of the things that we talk about is that um one of our kind of bedrock principles is quality equals dignity. So just because someone hands us um, a bag of clothing for a child, that does not mean it is going to get into the hands of a child because we want to make sure that whatever it is we provide the kids that we're serving um, is something that they can feel proud of and that they're going to feel you know, like, I'm really excited to wear this. This is like a gift. And I'm not going to get teased because I'm wearing this. You know, that is our, that is one of the things that's very important to us, that kids are going to, are going to have that confidence and, and that they will not be, um, that they will not be, you know, put in an uncomfortable position because of something that we provide. And so because of that, we ask our volunteers look, you know, all our clothes, they have to have no rips, no tears, no stains. They shouldn't be, have someone else's name in the back. They shouldn't Mm. have, there shouldn't be like, you know, um, like Johnny's birthday party referenced on the t-shirt. Cause if the kid doesn't know Johnny or the kid's (laughs) birthday party, that's not something nice to wear. And, And even such things as like, mommy's little girl. You know, we don't know the circumstances of the kids that we're serving. And so we really want to create these things that kids are going to feel good about because yeah. that is really, you know, driving the the mission that we have. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it'll really help people to know that, that you and your team consider these things because then, I mean, I, you know, we, we trust that people have great intentions when they're donating and then they're donating stuff that they think someone else would enjoy, but maybe they don't think about the fact that, oh, if that's not that child's name or if that child isn't being, their, if their guardian isn't also their parent, then, you know, those things may not, they may not be able to connect with them or they may trigger certain things and they may not have good memories around those things. And so it's not a good item for that particular child. And so... Uh, I think it'll help people to know that that you and your team really think those things through. And um, and I know I really appreciate it, and I'm sure they do as well. Um, 
I'd like for you to share with us about the parents and sort of how the parents interact with you and, and what they, how it helps them when their child, when you partner with them to help get their child ready for school or help make sure mm-hmm. that they have everything they need when they can't necessarily provide all of those things themselves. Right. So I think um, as a parent myself, I have a real, I feel a real affinity to the families and the parents that we engage with. And I should say that the way we serve kids is um, we have about 59 social service agency partners. So those are schools and those are homeless shelters and boys and girls clubs and after school programs and YMCAs. And the teachers or the social workers or the caseworkers at those partners order through us for the kids that they're serving. And so, you know, um, someone at the YMCA may have Susie in class and she's six and she wears a seven, eight, and she needs a coat and boots this winter. That social worker will go in and order in an online system for that child. And then the social worker picks up from us. We have a warehouse in Logan Square. And on occasion, we also um, deliver, but oftentimes people are picking up from us. So we don't have a ton of direct interaction with um, the families that we're serving because we're going through social service agencies. That said, we do hear a lot through our partners about the families and their needs and their circumstances. And, you know, certainly during the pandemic, but before the pandemic, you know, we would hear from families who, um, you know, there was a particular mom I'm thinking of who came to us through Carol Robertson Center, which is a child care center. And she had four kids and she was a single mom and her kids were like eight years old and under. And she was working during the pandemic, but her hours had been cut mm. and she still had to pay, you know, her rent and electricity and food and medicine. And so all of, and so the question was, how was she going to get her kids winter coats and boots and toys for the holidays? And she didn't know. She didn't know how to, you know, and that was giving her sleepless nights. And I can understand that as a parent myself, you know, how to have those, how you'd have those sleepless nights. And so if we can provide those, some of those things, which we can, the coats and the boots and um, sometimes the toys and, you know, other items, then that is one, those are a number of expenses that 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 family doesn't have to be concerned with and they can, you know, focus their resources on something else and maybe save a little bit if that's possible. But even if not, then they're paying the medical bill that they need to pay or they're paying the heating bill they need to pay. And so I think it's so, I really feel connected to the relief, I think, that we're able to provide for parents um, when they're in a tough circumstance and they don't know, you know, how they're going to meet all these needs. Yeah. When your volunteers come and they serve alongside you and um, they they see what you're doing and maybe they hear about other families who have been helped by the organization, how does that change them? What does that change about their family dynamic when they get to see this whole thing happen and know that they're making a, a big difference in the way of providing resources, not not just money, though. Money is important, as we talked about. You know, you need money to make all this happen. But but when you're actually putting resources in kids' hands and families get to be a part of that, how does that change these families that are volunteering 
or, or how they think about, you know, the way that the world works? I think that um, that's one of the most special things about the work that we do is providing people with a really tangible experience to see an Im- the impact that they're going to have. And so it's very real to people when they come to the warehouse and they're sorting clothing. And so that means that they're picking up, you know, all these different pieces of clothing, pants and tops and dresses and looking at them and saying, oh, this is quality. Oh, and I'm going to put it in this bin and a child is going to get it. Yeah. I think it makes it feel very real to them that the need is out there. And it, I think it makes it emotional oftentimes for them to realize that there are kids who have to rely on us because they don't have the ability to get their clothes elsewhere. And I also think it's really, I hear often from many of the people who are more deeply involved with us about how important this is for them to experience as a family. And we take children as young as five to volunteer with their families. And, you know, I think for those kids, it's a fun activity, first of all. Um, It's a fun environment to be in and it's kind of a fun sorting activity. But a lot of families talk about, you know, going home after that and and saying, why don't we look through your closet and see what are the things that you don't wear anymore um, that we could give? Because, you know, you saw that there are a number of kids who don't have these items and and you do. And I think that it enables that conversation for kids at a really young age to think about their civic responsibility, their kind of the social contract that we live in. We don't have to use those words, but I think it really builds that connection and builds that empathy that, um, that we're trying to build in our children today. Yeah. And with this sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, I'll say like 360 degree um, effort that you're doing where families are getting resources and families are also learning about families that need the resources and, and how they're making a difference for them. Um, with, with that in mind, um, what do you hope for the future of Chicago as we continue to work towards, um, you know, getting resources in the hands of those who need it in communities that need it. And also like, trying to be better for the, the greater good. What, what do you hope for the future for um, Chicago and for Cradles to Crayons Chicago? You know, I would love to work myself out of a job um, <laughs> where there we were in an environment where people didn't need um, what we were, what we're offering. Yeah. But I don't foresee that happening in the near future. Um, and so, you know, my hope really is that we continue to have um, that 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 cradles to crayons and the other organizations that are like us and that are our peers and that we partner with are able to continue to educate our community about the need that exists. And I think yeah. you know the pandemic has really brought a lot of that to light. That people have felt you know really saw and we felt a lot of community support during the pandemic because people understood that there was a deep need. But what I would say to that is there was a deep need way before the pandemic, yeah. and the families that we serve we're continuing to serve today and that need has not changed. You know, the demand that we experienced during the, um, during 2020 hasn't really lessened for us in 2021. And so I think, you know, my hope is that people in our community understand that there is a lot of struggle around us and that, you know, we owe it to the, the, these 
families who are people like us um, and these kids who are really what we need to create a vibrant future for our community, that we have to invest in that and that we have to look at that as a responsibility and as a, an honor to be able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us what Cradles to Crayons Chicago has coming up that people may be able to partner with you in. Sure. So we are in need, you know, what I love about Cradles is that there's, you can get involved however you want. You know, if you have time, we have volunteering opportunities for you. If you have stuff, if you have kids stuff, we have drop-off locations all around the city and you can drop off that stuff um, and we will, you know, give it a second life. And if you have money that you would like to donate, we will take that too to keep <laughs> those lights on and buy the diapers and the hygiene supplies that we need in, um, you know, that have to be new and that we can get in bulk. And so there are lots of different ways that people can engage and those ways are always there. We are entering, it's hard to believe, although it's a little gray outside today, that we are about to enter into winter. And that is a period of really significant need for the families that we're serving because anyone who's had a kid or a niece or nephew or a grandkid knows that when you wake up on you know November 1st and snow's on the ground, you're like, oh no, that coat <laughs> is too small and those boots are too small and we yeah. need to get new stuff. And so, you know, the families that we serve have that experience too. And so we do a big collection called Gear Up for Winter. In fact, our whole initiative in the wintertime is called Gear Up for Winter. And we'll be doing a collection that last week of October, October 25th to the 30th, um, collecting all around the city for winter items. And then also really encouraging volunteers, although we have volunteers every day um, or really four days a week and on weekends as well. Um, we are focusing on volunteering that week, that week in particular. But, um, you know, really our big focus is wanting to get warm items into the hands of kids um, as soon as we can, because, you know, those cold days are just around the corner, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Well, we would encourage everyone to go to cradlestocrans.org. That is the website home of your organization, and they can certainly find out more ways to partner with you there. We'll make sure to put all the ways in, um, in the link here as well so that people can easily go on and find how to, um, to give, how to give whatever they have, whatever those resources are that they have. And so um, we wanna make sure that we do that because we think uh, you lead a great organization and um, it's important work. And so we're happy to partner with you in that. And we hope that our listeners will join us in that. So. Shoshana, I want to thank you so much for your time today. It was really interesting hearing about you and the organization and what you're doing. Um, we think it's great, and we hope that you're around as long as the need is there because, you know, hopefully one day there won't be a need. But as long as it's there, we know that you and your organization will be there um, doing that uphill battle. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you so much. We really appreciate um, the interest and the willingness to share our story and the stories of the families that we serve. Yeah. Well, we love building partnerships and so it won't end here, um, but we'll certainly uh, hear from you again in the future and see how things are going, but we'll reach out and um, yeah, we, we love these partnerships. So thank you. And obviously we want to thank our listeners for tuning into this episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. You can find this episode and all the others at www.bridgingchicago.com. There's so many amazing organizations to hear about who are doing great work. 
And so thanks again, and we will see you again soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solutions Center. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guest. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of SATC Solution Center, SATC Law, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the hosts and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts, under certain conditions, and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including, but not limited to, or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceedings.